This is Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 13 verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some who... For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also, uh, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who speak to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, and bear the reproach he has endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Therefore, or or through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God." Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the word of the Lord. And uh, let let me go ahead and pray as we enter into our time of, uh, of worship and receiving the word this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's been a challenging book for us. Um, Your spirit has certainly moved in my heart and in many hearts here in the church, and so I pray that your spirit would move again here this morning, that would convict us, that that your spirit would grow us into disciples that uh, are shaped into the image of Christ. I pray uh, not only for our own hearts as we receive the word this morning, but I pray for uh, Pastor Matt as he brings the word, um, that you would um, keep him free of distractions, that you give him a clear Um, mind as he um, presents the word that uh, he's prepared for us here this morning. And I pray that your spirit would uh, work through his words uh, and, um, and, and again, fashion us all into the image of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace be with you. Uh, And peace uh, be with those of you who um, are at home or in your car listening. We love you as well. And uh, it's good to be here this morning, and it's good to wrap up Hebrews today. Um, I've learned a lot exploring this book. It's been a challenging book. It's been a helpful book to me. Hopefully, it's been helpful to you. Uh, I, I myself, have learned a ton 
uh, just exploring it, uh, diving in deeper to it, uh, the riches of thought, meditating on its message. It's a, it's a book that is written for Christians, uh, to Christians, um, and essentially saying, if, you, if you've been following along, you know this, but essentially it's been saying, hey, Christian, endure. Christian, persevere. Christian, don't stop. Keep going. Um, and Christian, you, you, you have to endure because you were meant for something so much better, so much better than what the world might be offering you currently right now in this season. And so it's a book saying to you um, in various ways over and over and over again, that's been the challenge of 10 weeks in Hebrews is in a lot of ways it's, it can feel repetitive. Maybe it, was, it felt that way to you. Um, uh, but essentially it was, it's been a book saying, hey, you were meant for a life with Jesus and his kingdom. And this is what he says about it. And this is, this is why, you know, we went back into 12, verse 28. <clears throat> For those of you who are new to the Bible, just bear in mind a simple thing, and that is that, um, you know, the Bible, the, the, these passages weren't originally written with these little numbers and chapter breaks. Um, we added that uh, to help us make sense of it. And that's okay, and that's good, but that's not the original way it was written. Um, and so really, verse 28 just flows right into 13. And so it says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So uh, what I want, or the reason why I'm highlighting that for you is to, to remember um, that gratitude and acceptable worship, gratitude and acceptable worship, this is the call for us as Christians, if we're truly listening. If you go back into the end of chapter 12, he brings up that concept of listening again. You know, really kind of peppered throughout the whole book of Hebrews is the author has been trying to get your imagination in this place of thinking that God is speaking to you here and now. He's always speaking. Are you listening? That's been the question. Um, and if you are someone who's saying, yes, I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening, then the call for you is to be one who exudes this, this gratitude and worship, true worship. Okay, cool. What is it? What does it look like? And what he does here in wrapping up the book is he lays out a list of practical implications of what gratitude and acceptable worship is. And he tells us this form, and it just kind of in a list. They kind of feel like a to-do list. I don't know if you've noticed that, um, but that's what the majority of Hebrews 13 is. It's a snapshot of what a church community looks like if it's filled with gratitude and true worship. And this is a church community, and so if we are a church community that's filled with gratitude and filled or has our sights on true worship of this, this Jesus who is better, this Jesus who all of these scriptures point to, this Jesus who has sacrificed himself for us, this is what it looks like. And I'm just going to go through them briefly, and then we'll try to make sense of them for our own lives. Um, but first of all, what you notice is it has this kind of familial love. It's right there in verse 1 of chapter 13. It's got this kind of intense and thick web of community. This, this, it's the, the, the word there actually is Philadelphia. In the verse 1, that's the word being used, Philadelphia. You're like, wait, the city? Yeah, that's brotherly love, sisterly love, Philadelphia. That's what the word means. And so uh, the church community is not merely called to be neighborly on the inside of its community. Um, it's called to love each other like brothers and sisters. We're called to love each other like brothers and sisters. Have that kind of inward commitment to each other. So in a sense, it has this inward focus. Got it? 
an inward focus to it. It does. It has an inward focus and an inward commitment. True worshiping, true grateful community has that feel to it. Uh, there is a commitment to each other. But interestingly, it's not just inward focused. It's outward as well, right? It's not just closed off and cold to outsiders. No, 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 no. Look, the next word in verse 2 is a, a, a variation. It's uh, philozenia. It literally means love of stranger, love of neighbor, love of foreigner, love of the outsider. It's why we translate it into the word hospitality. So um, it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is a a throwback to Abraham in the Old Testament. Uh, This word translated, yeah, philo, zinnia, literally means, like I said, love of stranger. So when the church community encounters someone new or on the outside of it, right, the idea is here, there is this, we offer this kind of intense safety, this comfort, this warm welcome to them. It's like we have this thick web of familial community, but then we're always open and willing to accept new people into it at all times, being very aware and attentive to new people. So there's not just this inward focus um, and inward commitment. There's this outward warmth as well. All right, we're not done. All right, verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. It's a kind of a call to empathy, really, is what it is. But really what he's saying, essentially what he's saying is be attentive, be compassionate, and willing to help those who are at the bottom, who, have ever, who through mistakes maybe have put themselves in terrible situations and they're stuck, or people that because just life has been unfair to them, they've experienced incredible amounts of disadvantage. Are you attentive to them, of their needs, and how you might be able to help them. What he's saying here is everybody's human. Everybody. And therefore, everyone has dignity. Everyone has dignity. And everyone is susceptible to struggles or hardships. So when we see someone in poverty, struggle, whatever it is, at a disadvantaged place, someone who has been oppressed, whatever the situation might be, even someone who's made terrible mistakes, when you look at them, you should, there should be a part of you that thinks, well, it could be me. It could be me. And so what this is, is uh, it's a first century call to social justice. That's what it is. It's a call for attention to the disadvantaged, the oppressed, the afflicted in our neighborhoods, um, in our schools, in our city, in our society. And then he goes from that and he gets personal, doesn't he? Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So uh, here's what we would call, in our day, we would use the term conservative sexual ethics. That's what this is. It's a call to conservative sexual ethics. You know, a grateful worshiping community elevates and honors not only marriage, but what we do with our sex lives. It's on the table as far as the Bible is concerned. And we have to take that seriously. So, so what he's saying is this kind of community, a grateful Jesus-worshiping community, isn't naive enough to think uh, that sex is inconsequential, as we often find the culture around us. Find. And by, by the way, you know, just, just because we're centuries beyond past this, when this was written, sex was just as inconsequential to them in their culture as it is in our culture. If you do a little history reading, you'll realize that. So that was a radical statement then, just like it's a radical statement now, this idea of of sex belonging 
only in the context of a marriage where there's commitment. And so this kind of community, it knows that to sleep with someone, um, to give yourself in that kind of way, in that form of intimacy, and not offer at the same time binding commitment, like that I'll be with you through sickness, through poverty, whatever it, whatever it means, I'm with you because I lay with you as well. This is, there's this binding commitment. If you are to do that and to not offer that kind of binding commitment, it's a radical move of selfishness. It's saying, I want your body, but I don't want to make any commitments to you. It's, it's selfishness that it's supreme. And this kind of community that he's describing knows that, is aware of it, and is saying, hey, we can't do that. We have to do something else. We have to practice something else. And so, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. He's not done. <laughs> he's not done challenging us. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And then uh, down in 16, he says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So what that is, is a, um, it's a call to radical simplicity and generosity, isn't it? The idea uh, that more money always equals more happiness can be an illusion. And this kind of community is aware of it. It's not that they think that money is terrible and they don't want money. It's just that they, they understand the kind of slavery that you can fall into with money. So they're very careful with it. Um, the grateful worshiping community isn't naive about the lies of money. Money is great. Money solves a lot of problems. But this community takes detaching themselves from the love of money very seriously. They know, they know when to stop chasing money. Do we? Like, do you know at what point? I think I'm chasing and chasing and chasing, and the chasing isn't going to end. So this kind of community knows when to stop chasing it, and they know how to give it away. They know how to just say, here, if I don't give it away, then in some ways, I don't know if I will ever stop chasing it. And I've always loved what um, the author, the tongue-in-cheek uh, champion, in my opinion, G.K. Chesterton, says about our desires for money. He said, he wrote, quote, uh, there are two ways to get enough. He's talking about money. One is to continue to accumulate more and more, and the other is to just desire it less. Verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So here's a call to uh, doctrinal consistency in grace. So despite the allure of new techniques and ideas in their day, just like in our day, nothing is better or more true than the gospel. Nothing. And there are plenty of great techniques out there, but nothing is better than the true gospel of grace. So uh, religion is always going to be a temptation for people who want God and want absolution. I see it today everywhere. People that want nothing to do with the Christian church still are looking for absolution. They're still trying to, they're looking for all sorts of techniques and ways. I mean, really the big thing now is all about self-actualization, self-help, right? Become your true self. Get unstuck. We all want to be the hero of our own journey and the hero of our own story. This, this pattern, this idea in the human spirit, it's been around since the beginning. But nothing is truer than the gospel of grace. 
this message that Jesus comes and, and unlocks us and really makes us human again. This, this kind of grateful worshiping community clings to Jesus and grace. They see Jesus as their only hope, not religious disciplines. Religious disciplines are great. Praying, fasting, reading, these sorts of things. They're great. But we, we only use and step into religious, spiritual disciplines so that it gets us attentive and aware of grace. That's the whole point of them. Then he moves on. This is the last one. Verse 17, obey your leaders. Don't you love this verse? Let's, can we just stop for a moment? If I want to take a deep breath. Believe me, you think I wanted to preach this one? If, you, if you're like, yes, you did, then you don't know me at all. <laughs> obey your leaders and, to, and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will, give, who will have to give an account, that is to God. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Oh, my congregation, right? Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. And this is interesting because everybody's always familiar. A lot of church people are familiar with this passage. I, I notice that they're not usually familiar with the ending. For that would be of no advantage to you. It's about you. Like, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Something about having a miserable leader, miserable pastor, that's bad for you. This is not a popular verse this day, and I don't think it was probably popular in their day. It's essentially a call to humility and teachability is what it is. To be clear, not every leader is worthy of trust and submission. Be the first to, to tell you that. And unfortunately, so many leaders over the years have betrayed people in so, so many horrible ways that there has always been a struggle within the believing community to trust and to follow them. But again, the grateful and worshiping community knows who God is. I think this is what's underlying this kind of trust and submission to human leadership. A grateful and worshiping community knows who God is and that he not only calls and appoints leaders over churches, but that he will hold them to account. Like, to a grateful, worshiping community that surrenders, submits, that follows qualified human leadership within the church, they can do so because they know, I know how to hand things over to God. God will make him or her give an account for what they do. There's a lot of security in that. And believe me, there's a lot of weight, <laughs> a lot of weight, sometimes crushing weight for leaders that are attentive to these things. But apparently, the idea is a life without trust and submission to anyone is a life without growth. Like this kind of practice, even when it hurts and it's hard, is critical to your growth. There's a, there's a stunted growth that will happen in a person's life if there's this unwillingness to be humble and teachable. Now, let me, let me summarize, and hopefully these guys in the back can throw, uh, Kyle can throw it up there. Um, but here it is, the description, the vision of this kind of community is remarkable. And that's all I really wanted to point out. I wanted to kind of stand back from it all. 
And I just want you to see it, and I want you to feel it, and I want you to notice this. You have inward commitment, you have outward warmth, social justice, conservative sexual ethics, generosity and simplicity, doctrinally grace-driven, not works-driven, humility and teachability. That, some, of that, some of that list up here, to some of you, there are things in that list that come very natural for you. It's just in your personality to do so. And there are parts in that list that do not. And every one of us in here is different. And there are, there are parts of that list that are challenging to every one of us. And what you'll notice if you're honest and you're aware, are there are parts that you lean on and you, that you use as your pedestal. And there are parts that you ignore. What I'm trying to highlight is, and I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of each one. What I'm trying to do is stand back from it all and notice something about it. It is completely strange and foreign when you put them all together. The believing, worshiping, grateful community of Jesus Christ is absolutely radical. It doesn't fit anywhere. It puts you off the grid. It's truly what I would call the beautiful, strange community. It doesn't exist anywhere. Oh, sure, there are hints and overlaps of other tribes, communities, religions. And Kyle, if you don't mind, just leave it up there until we transition. I just want it to sit up there in case you have to constantly reference it. But nothing out here that we see in culture is as comprehensively humble, loving, and selfless as that list. Nothing. Nothing that I can think of. It's a community deeply concerned about love and all of its relationships. And it's all about relationships. It is. All of life is run through the relational grid. Relationships in the church, outside the church, in your marriage, in your dating life, in your relationship to God, in your relationship to money, in your relationship to the poor, in your relationship to the scriptures. It's all relationships. It's how do you relate to all of these different things in life. And what the Christian is doing, what Jesus is forming inside of you is you are becoming someone that's more concerned about who are you, you are becoming in terms of your relationships than, than what you're doing. Who are you? How do you relate to everything in the world? It's all on the table for you. It's all a worthwhile study and looking into. Who relates this way? Like, when you look at that, who, who is just, who's crushing it at every one of those? Let me see the hands. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, it's, that's why I kind of wanted to stay up there. Because <laughs> I want you to feel the weight of it. It's huge. It's not just huge, but it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Nothing earthly resembles it. I mean, there are parts you get into and you go, man, this sounds, this sounds like super liberal. Yeah, it's super liberal until you get to conservative sexual ethics, right? Where it's like there's parts of it that, that feel completely, uh, you know, conservative and, uh, until you get to social justice, whatever it is. Like, it's, this, this is not, what, what, what community, what tribe resembles this community? Name it. Secular humanists? Is this a purely Republican way? Is this a purely Democrat way? It's off the map. Nothing on earth resembles this. And that's the point. It's heavenly. It's absolutely created by Jesus and fueled by the spirit of the living God. It's completely different. It's not the path of least resistance. 
That's for sure. It's difficult. It's, 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 uh, it's not complicated. It's actually pretty straightforward. Um, it's looking to become love. That's what I would say all week long, man. I mean, I'm like, how do you preach to preach to application? That's what it is. It's like at the end of a whole book, here's a guy, the author, that writes his application. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to preach some other preacher's application points? Very difficult. But I will tell you this. After I stood back, prayed over it, thought over it, meditated on it all week, it's just a framework for becoming love. That's what it is. Let's be reminded, all of you sitting here today, right? What are you here for? <laughs> like, what, like, why do you come to this? I mean, is it to be entertained? Goodness. <laughs> right? I mean, we could do, I mean, the production, I mean, we do the best we can, right? But, like, let's be real. The production, the presentation, there are far better things that you could do with your time. And many of people are. There are far better things that you could be doing with your time if you are only interested in entertainment and comfort. So why are you here? Why do you bother showing up on cold, rainy days, wrestling with children, whatever it is that you do? Something within you, I think, is stirring, and you know it. You come not to be entertained. You come to reflect on love, and you come to be reminded of love. You are here to be love. You are here to be loved on and to look to become love. That's what you're doing every single week, a love that is defined by Jesus and Jesus modeled. But there are threats to this kind of loving community at every turn. When you look at the list, there are plenty of threats to that list. Threats to becoming a loving, grateful, worshiping community. Something um, this beautiful and foreign to our natural ways of living is bound to have temptations. Because none of this, like I said, some of it might come natural for you. Maybe you're naturally someone who thinks, yeah, I, would, I can't imagine being uh, promiscuous. But some of you, you know, like, but the money thing, the money thing is just hard. Or some of you are just like, you've never had a money thing. You don't care. You're content. You don't care about money, right? But serving the poor is difficult. I don't know. It's foreign to us, and it's bound to tempt us. And the original listeners to this letter were tempted as well. They were threatened as well. And it's not the same for you. It, for them, it was Judaism. The religion they grew up with, the temple worship, the abstention from certain foods and practices, the reliance on the priests and the animal sacrifices. That's what they grew up on. That's what they knew. That was the community that, that they were now an outcast from. They were tempted to go back to Judaism, to make compromises in this new community of grace. Why? Because of social pressure. That's why. Because they were sick and tired of being an outsider. They wanted God, but they didn't want to be uncomfortable. They wanted God, but they didn't want to feel rejection. They wanted God, but they didn't want to be humiliated. They wanted God, but they also wanted to fit in with all of their peers. And it's difficult. To live in the ways we just described puts you at odds with family, some family, 
It puts you at odds with friends, maybe. It puts you at odds with culture around you. And if not those that I mentioned for you, at some point, it will surely put you at odds with yourself. Do you notice that? There are times your own desires are being challenged, and it hurts to be stretched and broken into love. That's what's happening. What makes this kind of life so difficult, uncomfortable, threatening even, is it's giving up sometimes on lesser dreams that you may have had and you thought you were going to pursue to now pursue the life that Jesus is calling you into. And there is a death there. And the Christian life is full of death and, res- death and resurrections. That's the thing that you have to realize. There's no escaping the struggle, the hurt, the shame, the humiliation, the rejections that you feel. You can't bypass the cross. That's what the Bible wants to tell us. We're so, we're so desperate to avoid to pursue the life Jesus wants for us is to face things like rejection, humiliation, at least somewhere. Maybe it just means facing the humiliation and death of the vision that you originally had for yourself. You know, maybe if you think back 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago, 30 years ago, you had a vision, a vision of what kind of family, what kind of neighborhood, what kind of income, what kind of career you were going to have, a vision of something. And some of that is being crucified. And you don't know what to do with it. What will you do with it? The kind of wealth, privilege, comfort, ease, and status you had originally mapped out for yourself is being crucified in your worship of Jesus. And you are threatened to make compromises. I don't know what they are. My assumption, though, is because you're a human being, and so therefore you have them. I don't know what it is for you. Only you can truly explore and identify where and in what ways you feel tempted to make compromises in your walk with Jesus and the list that's up in front of you. But I do know this. It's the process of facing our fear, shame, our guilt, our humiliation, our rejections, and then working through them with Jesus that fuels us into becoming the strange and beautiful community of love. It's when we face them. That's what the author is getting at when he says this in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Uh, The the word reproach can mean disgrace or insult. So what's he saying? Jesus was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. That's both literal, metaphorical really. In other words, Jesus lived and died outside the place of acceptance. He was ashamed. He was shamed, sorry. He was shamed, disgraced, humiliated, and was considered unclean. Crucifixion, see, wasn't just a horrible, painful death. It was meant to be the deepest form of rejection and humiliation. They were exposed naked, right? Crucifixion was someone being hung up for all to see outside the skirts of you know, the city, naked, ashamed, labeled an enemy and an outcast. It was so dehumanizing, so dehumanizing and disgusting, they wouldn't keep it inside the city. It had to be on the hillside outside. Unclean, unwelcome, humiliation. A lot of us think of crucifixion only in terms of physical pain, and it was. 
we often don't think of the fact that he was humiliated. Humiliated. For what? For me. For you. What everyone thought in the day of Jesus, right? What everybody thought was a moment of defeat and was so embarrassing and humiliating was, paradoxically, the undoing of evil. It's the shocking, the coolest thing I've ever, ever thought or witnessed or imagined in my, my entire life. It's the paradox of it. Jesus wasn't just absorbing the evil of the world, right? He was undoing all of it, making something new possible. He was making it so that evil wouldn't have the last say on God's good creation. He was made unclean and cast out so that we could be made clean and brought into the love of God. Therefore, what the author is saying is this. The point here is this. You must learn, if you are a Christ follower, what you have to learn in your daily, ordinary lives, you have to learn to uh, integrate your shame, your guilt, your fear, your rejection, your humiliation into Jesus. There's a whole integration that has to take place. All this stuff that we've been trained. I mean, you didn't, you didn't wittingly know you were being trained to do this, but you've been trained your whole life to shove that stuff or make up for it through compensating somehow. Like, like if we were completely open and trusting of each other. It's what my family calls the trust tree. <laughs> like if this was really what we want, would wish it was, the trust tree, where we could just be honest, every single one of us is hanging on to something that's humiliating. You've got a body image humiliation, a money humiliation, a marriage humiliation, a child humiliation, a spiritual humiliation, an intellectual humiliation. You've got something and your entire life, you've been trained to either shove that, like it doesn't exist and you don't feel it, or you compensate somehow. Or, better, worse yet, this is what I often see so often, is you transfer it. You just transfer it onto everybody else. It's why you're so nasty and it's why you're so cold. You're nasty to other people because you're ashamed. Because you're afraid I mean, I'm, I'm with you in it. Don't, don't think that I'm speaking down at you as if somehow I'm above all of this. Believe me, I know. When we get in touch with these things, we know. Like, I think that this is what I'm doing. I'm humi- I, I fear this humiliation. I fear this rejection. And so I just put it on everybody else around me. And the author is saying, don't do that. Don't shove it down. Don't avoid it. Don't make up for it in compensating. Take this stuff. The stuff you're scared of, take this stuff, bring it out, face it, name it, give it to Jesus, and work through it. And you're like, well, that's humiliating. I know, that's the point. Go outside the camp. It's humiliating to work through those things, but that's the paradox. Here's the paradox. In Christ, your humiliation is your transformation. In Christ, your humiliation and your fear of rejection is your superpower. If you avoid it, you will not change. And in some cases, some really horrible cases, you'll barely be able, like people will barely be able to stand you. But if you are someone, and I know some of these people, some of them in this congregation, if you are someone who really owns, like accepts and owns your humiliation, you don't brag about it, but you're not scared of it either. You're like, it is what it is. It's like, Paul, I am what I am. 
It's like, man, I mean, it's infectious. People want to be around you. People are inspired by you. People are warmed by you. I want you to hear this. This is Henry Nouwen. He writes this, Nobody escapes being wounded. We all are wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so that we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become our source of healing, we have become wounded healers. Jesus is God's wounded healer. Through his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' suffering and death brought joy and life. His humiliation brought glory. His rejection brought a community of love. As followers of Jesus, we can also allow our wounds to bring healing to others. Isn't that so beautiful? That's the paradox. The paradox is, and, and, and it's, it's in communion each week when we, when we, when we celebrate um, communion. I mean, think about what so often we rehearse when we, when we practice communion weekly. When we take this, this loaf of bread and we break it just like Jesus broke it, right? And, 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 and on the, we say, on the night he was betrayed. Betrayed, Jesus, the night he was betrayed. The night before, you know, he's going to be taken, right? He's going to be crucified. He's going to be humiliated. And what is Jesus doing? He's sitting down and he's giving thanks for a meal with his friends. He's giving thanks for this meal with his friends. And he's loving on his friends in spite of his impending rejection and humiliation. And he says, he took the bread and he gave thanks for it. And he said this, my, this is, represents my body, which is given for you. And he, and he took the cup of wine. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. My promise, I won't leave you. I'll never forsake you. The world might. You might do things and then people just laugh at you and mock you for the rest of your life. I never will. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, do it as often as you can so you can remember in your humiliation, you will find me, Jesus. That's what Jesus is offering. That's what he's saying each and every time we do this. We do it to remember. Remember not just, we, we, we are reminded not just of Jesus' love, but his wounds, his humiliation, his rejection. And that's powerful. That's powerful if you're facing humiliation, if you're facing rejection, if you're facing wounds. So here's what I would say before you come up, because we have a station up here and up over there. For communion, I would say this, please, this is my ask. Notice what is stirring in you. What, what, something in your past? Something in the current season you're in right now? Only you would know. I, 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 Lord knows I don't know. But you have something stirring in you. Something that's stirring that makes you realize, yes, this is where my humiliation lies, or this is what I fear, or this is, this is what I'm deeply ashamed of, or whatever that thing is. This is the particular way I know I feel. I know I'm compromising right here. So what is that thing? And are you willing to acknowledge it first and foremost? Like, name it. This is the thing I feel. This is the thing that I'm doing. This is the thing that is tempting me. And here's the next thing I would ask of you. Accept that it's you. Accept the fact that it's part of your story. Own it. If, you don't, if you're not willing to own it, then you can't be transformed. Like, you've got to realize, man, this is part of who I am. 
my thing with sex, my thing with money, my thing in my marriage, my thing, whatever it is in your fidelity, whatever your, your, your weak area is, your, your past, your mistake, your regret, own it and say, it's part of my story. There's nothing I can do about that. It's there. And then identify, identify the ways you are trying to compensate or shove it or hide it that is not working. Identify the ways that it's not working. I've been doing this my whole life and it's just not working out for me. Or I've been doing this lately and to, to cover it and it's not working for me. And then ask for help. Pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me with this. This very thing that's part of my story. This thing that I've been doing for years and years and years and years in my own power and it is not working. Please help me. Please. And watch what happens. Watch what he does. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we give you thanks. By your wounds, we are healed. And this means that as we experience our own wounds, we go to you, we integrate them into your story, and we recognize, oh, our story is now your story. And your story is our story. We are united with you. We are united not just only in your humiliation and your rejection, and in your pain, but we are united in your glory. We have an inheritance that is beyond our wildest imagination, but we must be honest. We have to be honest, so make us an honest people. May we own up to the things that we feel, that we think, and that threatens our fidelity. May we own these things, bring them to you, and ask for help. I need this. This congregation needs this. We trust that you will bless us in our honesty. Thank you again, and may we go out in peace this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen.